This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Here's what we want to do. We have an opportunity right now to talk to Dr. Jody Carrington. She's the author of Kids These Days. We're not talking concussions, but we are talking about some physiological things that are A, either going on, or B, used to go on and should still, but aren't. And a lot of that deals with how we're handling our phones, how we're handling our tablets, how we're handling our laptops, and maybe most importantly, how we're handling each other. So please welcome to London Live, Dr. Jody Carrington. Dr. Carrington, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. This is a really interesting topic because every one of us, unless we are on a yacht right now enjoying champagne and caviar, and I don't know about you, I I don't hear any waves splashing around me. I I don't hear waves splashing around you. I think you're hard at work. Uh, All of us kind of run into what we're going to be talking about in the workplace, and and the effect on us is maybe a, a little bit different than it used to be. Can we start maybe with compassion fatigue, which is laid out right there on your website, and and maybe help to define what that is? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, I think um, I'm a psychologist, and I've worked a real long time, uh, usually with kids. I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of kids, but I am a child psychologist. Um, and what they've taught me the most, uh, I think, Mike, in this whole process is we try so hard to be everything and to do everything. And um, it's no different than maybe our grandparents did, but there's one big difference about how we show up today than we have in, in previous generations. And um, the, the biggest issue we face is disconnection. So, you know, we were just talking off air a little bit about um, compassion fatigue is when uh, it's a form of burnout, but it is when your heart gets tired. So burnout is when you're exhausted because you have too many things on your plate. Compassion fatigue is when you start to question, you know, your choices in, in who you serve or what you do every day. It feels like you used to be better at this. Why is this so hard? Why, is, why can't I get through to anybody? And then we have nothing to give at the end of the day to, to the people who matter the most. Um, and so we're all just so damn tired. Uh, and the question then is, why? And that is an excellent question, because there are those days when, when yeah, you, you have trouble putting your heart into things. When, when you get up in the morning, you want to jump out of bed and think, I can't wait to see what I'm going to do today. And sometimes that's there. And for a lot of people, as, as you have done in research and others have done in research, that, that's kind of not there. So what are we finding about when you ask that question, why? Mm, it's such a good one. So Simon Sinek talks about this a lot. Purpose and passion ride like one ride shotgun with the other, right? So if you can't tell me why you do what you do, if you, if there's no purpose to why you're on this planet, uh, your passion for whatever it is, uh, if you're a barista or a truck driver or a physician, uh, if you can't tell me why you do it and what the purpose is behind it, your passion for it will be minimal. So here's the biggest issue, I think, behind every purpose that matters that gets us out of bed is that there is uh, a connection to serving other human beings. That's kind of why we're here. Um, we're wired to do hard things. But here's the critical thing. We're wired for connection. And we've never, ever, in the history of the free world, been more disconnected than we are right now. And so this idea of trying to figure out if we matter, do we have a purpose on this planet, all comes down to this connection piece. And if you think about this, Mike, like even the square footage of the house that your grandfather was raised in, and the square footage of the house in which we raise our babies, what's the difference? 
Uh, a lot bigger these days. Significant, right? And so even back then, there were so many more opportunities. They had proximity over us, right? And proximity mattered so much. If somebody lost their friggin' mind in your grandfather's house, everybody knew it. <laughs> if you had an argument with your partner, right? Think about the be- the size of the beds they slept in. You couldn't give your wife the silent treatment because you were sleeping nose to nose. You had to figure stuff out. And now we assume we can get in touch with anybody any chance we want because I can text them, right? But there's no replacement. There's a physiological change that happens in your body and mind when we're face-to-face with each other, um, when we are in the same physical place. So our cortisol decreases, our oxytocin, our dopamine increase, all of those things that allow us to feel competent and connected with each other and with ourselves. And the more disconnected we are, the more tired we become. And so instead of walking down to somebody's office to say, buddy, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit like, is this making sense to you? We send emails or texts that get misinterpreted, right? We give feedback that becomes really difficult to make sense of because I don't do things face-to-face. So the more remote we become, the more technologically advanced we become, we start to assume that social media is the problem. We start to assume that, I mean, we, we say all kinds of things, like it's the guns, it's the gluten, it's, the, it's all of these things. I'll tell you what, it's none of those things in isolation. What the most contributing factor to all of this is, is our disconnect. When you get connected to the people who you love, the connected to the things that you serve uh, and that set your soul on fire, you can handle anything that you got in front of you. We're talking with Dr. Jody Carrington. And Dr. Jody Carrington, you can find her website at drjodycarrington.com. It's very easy to find. Carrington is C-A-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N. Or you can check out her book called Kids These Days. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about people being in the same room and the physiological effect of that. And maybe, I don't know why we've missed this or why somebody thought, well, you know, if you've got a screen with somebody, it is the same thing. It's 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 maybe something that, that works, but everybody knows the feeling of being in a good brainstorming session or, or seeing a great speaker and you walk out of wherever you saw that great speaker and, and the energy you feel, the the things that wash over your body. How come we don't pay more attention to those effects and realize we need to do more of that? Right? I, this is such a question. So it becomes easier, right? When I have an exit ramp all day long, so I, here's this uh, real quick theory. I think the demise of most marriages these days uh, comes down to one thing, and it's called Netflix. <laughs> um, and I, at the end of the day, right, we, we don't refuel with each other anymore. We disconnect. We feel like we've earned the right to sink in to, you know, whatever show we're watching, right? Instead of having hard conversations. And so when I think about this, my grandparents played three games of crib every night, right? (laughs) Which is a a card game, right? And what happens when you play crib with a significant other? Usually a domestic of some sort. But what's involved in that process is engagement, right? And conflict is is part of any relationship that matters. So how do I navigate those hard things? means i got to be face-to-face. i got to have conversations. Now, when I have an exit ramp and I can say, oh, God, I, you know what? I don't want to talk about that right now. I'd just rather watch Grey's Anatomy because I've worked so hard today. I've taken three kids to golf. I've got two kids in hockey. I'm launching a company. i got to take my book. i got to hang on to three employees. I just I don't want to talk to you, honey, right? And what happens over time is the sense of do I matter? We have a hard time interpreting all these little signs. The story in our head becomes so big that we don't matter to each other anymore. So the exit ramp is so significantly available that I could just text my kids instead of going to their room and saying, babe, supper's ready, right? Yeah. And it is 
the subtle art of that disconnect that really, really is the heart of everything that I think is the biggest issue. Wow. What a, what a great thing to say, because that, that spells it out perfectly, where, yeah, you don't want to talk at the end of the day, but the importance of doing that, you also mentioned the hard things. Things are going to come up in life, and those things are going to be hard. And, and I wonder, we're doing a lot of protecting of kids as they grow up. We like to, you know, we don't want to see them hurt. We don't want to see them sad. We don't want to see them any of those things. So maybe we come in and, and help them not have to deal with with those things. What is that doing when those kids are getting older now and becoming adults? Oh, I love that question. So I wrote a book about it. (laughs) So much so I love that question. And here's the issue. As a child psychologist, I hear this all the time. Kids these days are in big trouble. Kids these days are disrespectful and they're unkind and they don't know how to work and they're unmotivated and all they want to be is on their devices. Um, Here's what's really interesting. And, you know, a, a fellow colleague of mine, Stuart Shanker, said this as well. I've assessed and treated over a 1,000 kids in this country, and I've never, not one time, met a bad kid. But I've met a lot of kids who are super disconnected. And the things that you really want for our, the things we really want for our babies, to be kind, to be happy, to make good choices, to do well in school, all of those things, we got to show them how to do what we can't tell them. If I want to show my kid how to do really important things like have empathy or be kind, i got to show them I can't tell them. If I want to show them how to mourn, when hard things come, I want to show them how to do that. I can't tell them how to do it. i got to show them. And the more disconnected we become, the less opportunities we have to show our babies how you show up in an elevator and say to a stranger, hey, how are you? Or I take you to the grocery store. Now we get our groceries delivered. Take, taking your babies to a grocery store is a rite of friggin' passage. Let them lose your shit in the grocery store so that they see how you pull it back together. I can't tell you how to do it. i got to show you. It's like in the history of telling somebody how to calm down, calm down has never worked. What works is when I say, okay, 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 Mike, I got you. I got you. Talk to me. Right? That's how I assist you in regulating emotion. That's how I assist you in making sense of hard things. And the more disconnected we are, we're not showing our babies how to do it. They're going to be okay. They're going to be all right. There's nothing wrong with kids these days. What they need is more of us. Wow. Dr. Jody Carrington joining us, author of Kids These Days. You can check out Dr. Carrington's website at drjodycarrington.com. Again, Carrington is C-A-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N. So, Dr. Carrington, in closing then, if we know that we are disconnected, you've described so many different scenarios that people have been in, watching Netflix at the end of the day, and someone's talking to you, and you think, "Ah, I'm just trying to focus on the show, it's been a long day. So, how do we start taking the steps back to being connected? Because I don't imagine you can do it just flip of a switch. What are some of the things that you can do to start the process? All I want you to think about in the next little bit, in the communities where you show up, where we're raising each other's babies, is just get eye contact. Give somebody a compliment. See if you can get somebody to smile. You do that, you'll change the world. If each of us do that, it's like, can you imagine if like a thousand of your listeners did that? It, it's the ripple effect. Right? And, you know, Mother Teresa often talked about this, right? Cast a stone. That's our only job. If we think about this as a global issue, it's exhausting and it makes us, you know, we just want to go to sleep. What, <laughs> all we got is control over each of us every single day. So step up the best you can with your base. Look at your husband at the end of the day, just for, for 20 seconds, right? Not at somebody at the grocery store. That's how we change the world. One sweet step at a time.
I love the easy answer that you've given to that, because we can all do exactly what you described. What you are doing right now is phenomenal. Please do it. You'll change the world. Uh, Please don't stop. Thanks so much for the time. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Dr. Jody Carrington, author of Kids These Days. And it goes back to that. If you don't show your kids how to do something, they're not going to know how to do it. It's as simple as that. And... You know, we always think about that in the way of, well, you know, gotta gotta show the kids how to check the oil. And maybe if you're good enough, you can say, I'm going to show the kids how to change the oil. And that's fine. That's good. Gotta show the kids how to cut the grass so that I don't have to do it anymore. Yeah, that's that's an excellent thing, too. Come on, we're going to rake the leaves. Fantastic. Vacuum the... I get it. But here's the thing. As Dr. Carrington said, if you don't show them that you can kind of lose it for a second and then put it all back together, they don't necessarily know how to do that. And if there's one thing that we have set our next generation up for, it is the inability to cope with failure. You know, I loved it. I loved it. Not in front of their faces. I loved it when my kids were in about grade three or four and they both came home and they had both bombed a test. It happened three years apart. And it was, I just went, yes, yes. I didn't do it in front of them. Both of them are upset about it. You know, one was like a two out of 11 on a science test. Another one was a 40% on something. And number one, I And I should have done it at the time because sometimes I would send little thank you notes to different teachers for different things. I should have done it at the time. I should have sent a thank you note to both of those teachers for letting my kids fail those tests. Thank you. Man, that is outstanding. I was so happy with it because right in that instant, they learned that they had failed. And you were able to look and say, okay. What didn't you do? What didn't you understand? What happened? You know, this is not a bad thing. And that's how we dealt with it. We sat down. This is not a bad thing. What happened this time? What can you go back over? And what can you do differently the next time? And we don't allow that to happen. We don't allow our precious little snowflakes to fail. And that's bad. They need to be able to fail. It... It does that to me when I hear that a teacher has enabled kids who got a poor mark on something to go back and fix answers. And I even ran this past my latest class at Fanchise. I said, do they still do this? Have you ever been able to take a test that you didn't do well in, go back and fix up answers, and hand it in for partial marks? Oh, yeah. You're not teaching them anything. You can't do that. All you're doing is adjusting the average of your class. You can't do that. They must be allowed to fail so that when they get to situations, they don't freak out about it. They've been through it. They say, you know, I had a thing go bad when I was 10. You know, something bad happened to me when I was 15, and I was able to deal with it. And I'm going to be able to deal with this too. And that's the kind of thing we need. You need to be able to have that human contact as well. And that's the other thing that Dr. Carrington was going into. That you don't have that human contact. You're not showing in the same way that you used to. 
Maybe it's the devices. Maybe it's attitudes. I don't know. But if you're spending time posting your crap, whatever it is you've bought, whatever it is you've done, whatever it is you look like tonight, and your kid is over there in the corner doing something different, you're the one doing the wrong thing. You're the one who needs to change. So Dr. Jody Carrington is doing a, a fantastic job in my mind. So I hope she does keep it up. We were kind of introducing numbers as potential police officer salaries, and they were they were big numbers. Now, we all know when you look at those numbers, I actually wouldn't want to have them any other way. I've talked about this before. If you want to put money where it should go, take it out of the hands of the athletes. I love Matthew Kachuk to death. He is an amazing human being. I wish him all the best. He got paid... $21 million over three years today. He plays hockey. That's great. That's great. That's where that money goes. But if I could pick up the world and rearrange it and put it back down, I would actually give that kind of dollar to police officers, firefighters, teachers, nurses, and doctors. That's who needs to be paid like millionaire athletes because of the work that they do. And this weekend is... A very important day. If you look at police and fire, for sure, most of us will go to work today. I don't know about you. When I walked into work today, I put my lunch in the fridge, said hi to some people. At no point was my life in danger. At no point. None. Everybody was nice. That was it. I went to my desk, started preparing for the show, put together the Around the OHL podcast with Jake Jeffrey. That was my... There was no risk... To my day whatsoever. What, a paper cut? The carpal tunnel because I'm typing too much? I don't know. But for police and fire, it's different. It's very different. And we have police and peace officers National Memorial Day this weekend to take a look at what police officers do. And we had a nationwide half-masting in 2003 and flags are half-masted on all federal buildings and establishments on the Peace Tower, now from sunrise to sunset of the Police and Peace Officers National Memorial Day. That comes up this weekend, and we have all kinds of officers taking part in the Memorial Ride to Remember, and you can actually go to policeridetoremember.com right now, and you can see pictures of that ride. You can certainly find out more information about that ride. They left... From the police college this morning, they'll be arriving on Parliament Hill this weekend. And part of the ride just today just happened to be Steve Bauer, who won a silver medal for Canada in cycling at the 84 Olympics, who competed in professional cycling. And he just wanted to be a part of this. And we had a chance to sit down and have a one-on-one conversation with Steve Bauer last night prior to them leaving this morning. And Steve said right away he was so looking forward to getting started. Well, it's interesting you ask that because uh, 200 kilometers a day, uh, these uh, gentlemen and ladies, you know, heading to Ottawa for great causes, you know, it's a long distance every day. And I, I don't do that type of riding anymore. You know, I don't sit on my bike for six, seven hours a day. You look like anymore. you could. I can. And I did the ride from Niagara today with the, with the group from uh, Niagara and we did 180 kilometers and it was, it was a, it was a nice cruise. A lot of, a lot of strong, uh, strong police officers in this group and they're fit. They're in shape. They prepared for it. 
Um, but I have a pretty sore rear end because I haven't sat on a bike that long in a while. But I, I, I feel good. It's a, it's a great cause and a, and, a, and a great awareness for fallen officers. It's it's uh, it's nice to be part of it, actually. Well, it's great to see you being a part of it. You mentioned bike seats. Do bike seats ever actually get comfortable? I mean, they haven't changed much over the years. No, there's only one way to get more comfortable, and that's ride more. It's as simple as that. You know, you have to prepare your rear end uh, muscle, you know, just like any other muscle that you use in your body. But, yeah, you know, sitting on the bike. We can go back to 84, the L.A. Olympics. I mean, you won a silver medal at the L.A. Olympics. What do you remember from those games? Well, you know, it's interesting. If you look at the old um, sports channels, uh, agony of defeat videos, you know, the first the first thing uh, that comes to your mind, because you want to win, right? And uh, it's all about, you know, sports are all about winning, and we, we search for wins all the time. Uh, but, you know, you stand on the podium and you realize that it's, it's, it's quite an accomplishment to win a silver medal, you know, being Canadian and being in, in a particular sport that's not so common, you know, as uh, hockey or, or other soccer or basketball. So, um, you know, it's, it's a very proud moment. And uh, it's a long time ago now. Not, <laughs> so. It doesn't feel long ago to us, though, right? Yeah, no, it, it, time, time flies, that's for sure. That's for sure. Well, you put cycling on the map at that point. What was it like coming back to Canada because of that? Because you were such a fixture of that games for this country. Yeah, it was. It was. It was really a nice moment because I, I didn't stay at the games. Um, I, I went to the games to race. I didn't go to the games for the celebration of Olympic Games, but I went to to race my bike. I was successful, and, and I immediately decided that I was going to turn professional. So I already had my mind forward, you know, advanced forward. So I flew home. The next day, and uh, I was already prepared to head to Europe and, and start racing in Europe. So it was, it was like a progression at the end of my amateur career to, to turn professional. And then you turn pro. I mean, take us through the steps, because it, I'm sure you don't just put your hand in the air and say, hey, I'm, I'm ready to turn professional. What did you have to do in order to get into a sport like that at the highest level in Europe, where you have so many good riders? Well, I, ra- I raised the attention of, of several teams from the Olympic performance and uh, maybe maybe prior to that as well because I was res- racing really well. Uh, and then I went to Europe. I trained hard with uh, Greg LeMond and, and Phil Anderson and other uh, high-level professionals at the time. And I raced a professional road race in Barcelona where at the World Championships, which um, I won a bronze medal. So in one of my earliest professional races, I was really at the at the top of the game, you know, uh, competitively. I mean, it's a one-day race, but I still had a tremendous performance, and that really sort of secured the interest of, of several teams, of which uh, a French team, Levy Claire, uh, decided to sign me. And I, I turned professional in 1985 and uh, started my pro career, Tour de France, Giro d'Italia, you know, all the major classics and the biggest races in Europe. There was a race that you did finish first on the Pro Tour. Do you remember that day? Uh, championship of Zurich uh, in Switzerland was, was one of the big days. Um, I had so many uh, so many close uh, calls on some big races. I won a stage in the Tour, and that was uh, 1988, and it... it uh, he gave me the opportunity to wear the yellow jersey in 1988 for five days of that race. Um, I carried the yellow jersey again in 1990 for for nine days, and uh, my best performance in 1988 was fourth place in the Tour, which was probably the most 
uh, proud I am of an athletic performance to be fourth in the tour because that's a collective sort of 21 day, you know, over the Pyrenees, the Alps, uh, you know, against 199 other guys, and uh, that was it. That was it. That was the sort of the pinna- pinnacle of my career. Candidate Steve Bauer with us. About to cycle with all kinds of police officers to Ottawa. Now, the yellow jersey, we get to see a rider wearing it. We get to see a rider sometimes getting it at the end of a stage. What happens to the yellow jersey after? Do you get to take it to your, your room? What do you do with it? Well, each day you get a new jersey. And uh, so if you're fortunate to carry it a few more days, you collect one for every day. And so I, I, I still have a few at home. Uh, I've given jerseys to my uh, my mentors, you know, coaches, uh, Hall of Fame, stuff like that. So, I mean, you, you keep a few around just to remind you of what happened in 1988 and 90. So it was, it was a pretty exciting moment in my life. And But now I'm, I'm just happy to be here with these guys, uh, you know, to give their lives every day, you know, to secure our, our uh, communities and do a great job for, for uh, people. In Canada, and um, yeah, it's a, it's it's a, it's a nice nice thing what they do here. And I understand from Sean Briggs, the organizer in um, uh, Niagara, Niagara Regional Police. He's been doing it for 12 years. Uh, he's really passionate about it, and uh, I'm just happy to meet him, uh, Sean. And he invited me to do the ride this year, and I was happy to free my calendar just just to be able to be here for a couple of days and, and do this ride. So I won't go all the way to Ottawa. That would be too, too, too far for me, but these guys are in good shape. Uh, but they, I'll go to Toronto tomorrow, and it'll be an exciting thing to do with them. One of the conversations they always have is who's going to draft off whom tomorrow morning. Is anybody trying to trying to hitch off you from the beginning? No, I mean, there's some strong uh, strong men here, uh, probably in better shape than I am. And, uh, I, you know, I take my turn on the front, but I'm, I'm happy to sit on a wheel and uh, take the draft. You know, that's, uh, that's part of the fun because you get to meet a lot more people during the day. Steve, great talking with you. Congratulations on the career, and thanks so much for being a part of this event. Yeah, thank you very much. That is Steve Bauer, won a silver for Canada at the L.A. Olympics, raced professionally in cycling, and is a part of the Canadian Police Memorial Ride to Remember. Again, you can visit policeridetoremember.com. And they're cycling to Ottawa right now, and they were wondering how the weather was going to be. The weather has started to turn just a little bit. They're definitely working with a wind, but as Steve said, all of these men and women are in such tremendous shape. You know, the, the police college doesn't train you to be a cyclist, but you look at how athletic officers have to be these days and yeah they they just make it happen and good on them for doing it and this weekend we will have the police and peace officers national memorial day and they will be taking part in that representing this area and all of that of course is in memory of officers who have lost their lives we've got some very good news about the Continental Cup of Curling, and that is who's coming, and more ticket information, and we want to make sure that we bring that to you. Joining us right now from Curling Canada is Jennifer McCandy. Jen, we do. We we now know who's coming to the Continental Cup of Curling. Uh, that's right. We just announced yesterday 10 of the 12 teams that are going to be competing in the 2020 event. The last two teams, we will find out, in early December, uh, they're the winners of the Home Hardware Canada Cup. 
but we've got four teams from Canada and six teams from Europe that we announced yesterday. Can you throw some names at us for curling fans? They'll, this this sure. will get exciting for them. Okay, stage There's is yours. There's definitely some names that curling fans are going to know. So we've got Team Cooey, winners of the Tim Hortons Briar last year, and Team Carey, winners of the Scotties last year. Um, the other two Canadian teams are uh, Team Botcher out of Alberta, who are fan favorites, and Team Holman, who are Ontario girls um, Olympians from 2018. So it's a pretty good lineup on the Canadian side. Um, but the European side is kind of stacked as well. So it's not going to be uh, an easy win for Canada for sure. We've got two Swedish teams, um, Adine and Hasselborg, both uh, former Olympic champions, world champions, um, two teams from Switzerland, De Cruz and Tiranzoni, and two Scottish teams this year, uh, Moet and Muirhead. And all of those teams kind of combine as Team Europe, right? And then all the Canadian teams combine. So it's not like you're just trying to, to beat those individual teams. You have to beat them collectively. Yeah, exactly. It's similar to a Ryder Cup for golf fans out there. Um, so there's traditional curling that happens where you would see a team home and playing a team Hasselborg. Uh, but what's really cool about this event is we mix the teams up a lot. We do mixed doubles events. We do scrambles where you might have a couple members from one team, a couple members from another team playing with each other. Um, and then at the end of four days of competition, either Team Canada or Team Europe will build up enough points to be declared the champion of the event. We're talking with Jen McCandy from Curling Canada, and we're talking about the Continental Cup of Curling coming back to London in 2020. And the team names are out. Now, you did mention maybe the team that is maybe has the least profile from Canada is one of a fan-favorite type team. What makes them fan favorites? What do they do? They're just a blast to watch. So it's the, the Botcher team out of Alberta. And you know what? The only reason I'm, you might call them low profile is they don't have a Briar win under their belt yet. But they've been, you know, in the playoffs, they've come second. Um, they're a really, really good team, but they're not necessarily the most flashy team. Um, but if you follow them on Twitter, they're hilarious. They're uh, one of their players, Darren Molding. He's a real character, but they all just are, are really nice guys. Um, and, you know, fans just love to root for them. And I guess the last thing we should touch on then is tickets and the availability of tickets. How do we get them? Uh, so you can get them on our website, curling.ca slash tickets. Right now we've got the full event package on sale plus uh, smaller packages for the weekend or individual days that you might want to come. And as expected, um, you know, based on a really, really strong event in 2018, the tickets are selling well. So we're gonna, we're gonna have those packages on sale until November 15th. And the following week, we'll put on single draw tickets. So uh, if people go to our website right now, they can kind of see what's available. And then if you're thinking ahead and you're thinking about Christmas presents and maybe somebody would want to come and check out a draw or two but doesn't want to commit to the full weekend, those will be on sale on November the 19th. Jen, thank you so much for all the details and the rundown of the teams. Tick, tick, tick. We're getting closer. Still watching that clock. We'll talk again soon. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, Mike. Jen McCandy from Curling Canada. So the four Canadian teams, what we have from Europe makes for a very interesting competition. 
when this was here the last time, this was something that people weren't really familiar with, but it is kind of a Ryder Cup format. So it's the points, in this case, it's Canada. It used to be Canada in the United States, so it was Team North America. And instead, they will have Canada versus Europe. And it's kind of Ryder Cup. Hey, look, 15 points to 13 points overall. And curling fans absolutely love it. And it's really relaxing, it seems, for the competitors as well. There was some of that edge, some of that stress. The Briar, the Scotties, they're tremendous. We've had both of them in this city. And you may have seen some of those competitions when they came to London. But sometimes you would you would have that edge, and rightly so. You know, you're trying to win the ultimate Canadian competition in women's and men's curling. But at this particular competition, that edge is is gone. They they want to win, but they're having more fun. It seems, and there's there's a different feel to it. So, Continental Cup of Curling on its way very early next year. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3 